Hello, and welcome to Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships from the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. I'm Rabbi Brent Spodek, and I am thrilled to be with you as we dive into Jewish texts to see how they can guide us to be better lovers to our partners, our parents, our children, our friends, all of the complicated human beings in our lives who we try to love. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Rabbi Michal B. Springer, who is the manager of clinical pastoral education at New York Presbyterian Hospital. She's the founding director of the Center for Pastoral Education at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which she ran from 2009 to 2019. Before that, Michal was the associate dean and director of field education at the rabbinical school, where I had the blessing of being one of her students. I'll come back to that in just a moment. More recently, she is the co-author with Sue Yan Pak of Sisters in Mourning, Daughters Reflecting on Care, Loss, and Meaning. And I'll say for me, in the years that I was a student at JTS, when I was not always the happiest or the most contented rabbinical student, Michal, you were one of the places, one of the main places where I could come with my angst and my doubt and my uncertainties, of which I have so many on a personal level, on a professional level, and the love and care and guidance you showed to me and to my wife, Allison, is something we were grateful for then and I remain grateful for now. And I am so glad and so delighted to be able to connect with you and learn with you together today. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Grant. It was incredible that I had the opportunity to be with you then really an honor and a privilege. And what a blessing to reconnect with you in this way in this moment. It really is. We're going to take a look today at a text from the Talmud. And just as a reminder for folks, the Talmud is an incredibly large and complicated work spanning hundreds of years. And what it really is, is a Jewish auto-anthropology, how we live, how we made sense of human existence, how we dealt with all of the complicated relationships in our lives between people, between human and divine, easy times, hard times. And the Talmud is full of a lot of stories of a lot of rabbis who are human beings and dealing with things in their lives that are in some ways very different and in some ways very similar to things that we deal with today. So the story we're taking a look at involves a rabbi named Rav Asi. It's in Kiddushin 31b. And the story is as follows. So Rav Asi has an elderly mother. And she said to him, hey, I want some jewelry. And so he went and he got jewelry, made jewelry for her. And then Mrs. Asi, let's call her, says, I want a husband. And Rabbi Asi says, okay, I'll, I'll try. I'll see what I could do. And his mother says, and I want the husband to be just as handsome as you. And Rav Asi says, great, I'm leaving. I'm going to go far away to the land of Israel. And then in the land of Israel, he's moving there from Babylon, right, from what we now contemporary Iraq. He moves to the land of Israel after his mother asks for a husband as handsome as he is. And while he's in the land of Israel, he hears, he gets word that his mother is coming. And so he goes to one of the sages of the era, Rabbi Yochanan, and says, hey, is it okay if I leave the land? And Rabbi Yochanan says, no, you're not. Once you come to the land of Israel, you're not supposed to leave it. And then he asks again, okay, can I leave the land of Israel in order to greet my mother and accompany her? And Rav Yochanan, with the wisdom that not all wisdom comes from books, says, I can't really answer that question. 
Rav Asi waits a little bit and then approaches Rabbi Yochanan again and says, can I do this? And Rav Yochanan says, it seems like you want to do this. May God bring you back safely. Now, Rav Asi is nervous. He's nervous about what to do about his mother. He's also nervous that he's maybe angered his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan. So he goes to another rabbi, Rabbi Elazar, who's himself a student of Rabbi Yochanan, and says, hey, here's what happened. I went and talked to Rabbi Yochanan. Did I anger him? Did I piss him off? And Rabbi Elazar says, he gave you a blessing that you should come back in peace. Don't sweat it. You're all good. So Rav Asi, it seems, is ready to move forward when he gets word that his mother is coming, but in a coffin. She's passed away somewhere on her journey, and she's arriving in the land of Israel. And our story ends with Rav Asi saying somewhat enigmatically, had I known, I never would have left. It's not clear, perhaps we'll get into this, had he known what exactly, and he never would have left when exactly, but the text itself is ambiguous on that very point, as well as a few other ones. And that ends the story. And as is the way of the Talmud, it tells this story. And then more stories follow and more discussions come from there. But let's stop there. And Michal, let me ask you, what jumps out at you in the story? What seems notable or remarkable in the story? I think we have to start with the first three requests. So the request for jewelry, fine. He can handle jewelry, an object, fine. The request for a husband harder, but he's going to do what he can. He's okay with that. So my father died before my mother, taking care of her needs after my father was gone. If she had wanted to remarry, I would have supported her in that. We, it's it's not as simple as, as some kind of object, but it's an understandable request. We want the person we love to be happy, and we know that there's a possibility, even when somebody loses a spouse later in life, that there can be another relationship in their life that can bring them great joy. And as the child of an adult person who's lost a partner, I want to support my mother in that. But when it comes to someone as handsome as you, something goes wrong. Yeah. So what do we understand about that? What does that mean? So what jumps out at me is that somehow his mother crossed a boundary. Mm -hmm. And the only solution he had for it was to put distance between himself and his mother. Now, it's it's interesting because he leaves, but he goes someplace sacred. He goes to Eretz Israel, goes to Israel, the land of Israel. So that's the part where the story gets really complicated. Is it the solution of distance? So many people find that if they put a lot of distance between themselves and the people closest to them and their families, they feel better. It doesn't actually solve anything, but they might feel better on a day-to-day basis. Is that what it is? Or is there something else that has taken place in his saying, that boundary has been crossed, I have to go? Yeah, that boundary question right there feels so rich and so important. And one of the real complicated things, at least in my life of parenting, is on the one hand, becoming a parent was such a huge part of my radar screen, so much of who I wanted to be, how I understood my aspirations in life. 15 years ago, I had a framework of, I'm going to become a dad, and what is that going to mean for me? And it was this story about me. And part of the vital, but certainly not easy process of watching your kids grow up, particularly with leaving home moments on the horizon, is also recognizing The story might have been about me before this person was born, but over time, 
is the process of letting go and saying, okay, no, 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 their story is about them. They're not the prop that makes me a dad. They are their own person with their own complexities, their own realities, their own whatever. And I'm here to help, support, challenge, maybe even correct when needed, but it's about them. And I hear Mrs. Ossie saying, I want my husband to be as handsome as my kid. And I hear a little bit of that difficulty of letting go and letting the kid be their own reality, the star of their own show, not just the person who made you a mom. And I have a lot of, I, honestly, I'm, I am both empathetic to Rob Ossie in this story and in ways it pains me to admit, a little empathetic to Mrs. Ossie of being like, I just want to hold you a little longer. I just want to... I want to tuck you in and read you a bedtime story just one more time, long after that moment has passed. Yeah. I think that in some ways, when she says, a husband who's as handsome as you, she's saying, I want you. I want you to meet my needs in a way that you can't. And I and I get there a little bit, uh, obviously because of his reaction, like something has gone wrong, but but also in her choice, de Shapir who's as handsome as you, the choice of handsomeness to bring in that physical quality that she is attracted to him. Mm -hmm. And that we can be attracted to our children for lots of qualities that they have, but there needs to be healthy distance that protects them from whatever fantasies, aggression we might have that allows them, as you were talking about, to be separate from us. And she's collapsing that distance in a way that is signaling to him that his life is in danger. Now, that may be a very dramatic way of saying it, but I think that his reaction lets us know that he does not feel safe. And we know that there are lots of people in relationships, especially family relationships, who don't feel safe. Yeah, and I appreciate you refocusing us on the language. The word that's used for he went to Israel, it's this word shavka which is, it's, it's not just leaving. It's, it, there is an element of forsaking, abandoning. It's a stronger word. There'd be a more gentle way to say, like, just he left, you know, yatsa. He, he went out without any sort of valence. The text here in the, in the subtle way of traditional text is giving us a little indication. This was a leaving with a little uh, force. This was a, uh, a little bit of slamming the door on the way out, so to speak. Well, there's a mapik in that, hey, shavka, he left her. Yeah. Right. Then the next verb is the azel, and he and he went. But but he is very much departing from her. He needs to be rid of her. And so if we come to the end of the story, and he says, "I never would have left." Is he saying, "I never would have left in the first place," or "I never would have left Eretz Israel, where it's kind of ambiguous right. if he was allowed to leave the land to go and greet her, but. Maybe he never would have left her if he'd known that she was going to die, that this was going to be the end. Maybe he would have behaved differently. And this is this is a real challenge for us when we have elderly parents and we know that there is not endless life ahead of our parents. How do we treat them? When do we acknowledge abuse, violations of boundaries, a limit to what we can do that is kibbutz avim, the honoring of father and mother, and when do we say, I must do this? I must stretch for this person who is to be honored. That I think that's the real tension here in the story. And the material that comes immediately following these stories is all about honoring one's parents in life and in death. But this story, which is not 
prescriptive. It's a story. It has so much nuance. And in the nuance, Rav Asi reaches this limit. And when his mother follows him to Eretz Yisrael, and we could talk about that as a boundary crossing when he's trying to establish this distance, he could say, oh my God, like there's no place for me to go. But in fact, he, he approaches Rabbi Yochanan and he says, can I go? Can I go and meet her? Is there a boundary about my leaving? And you might have thought that he would have felt somewhat protected by not being able to leave. But that ambivalence of, well, she's come after me, so now I have to come and greet her. How do I deal with her arrival? Maybe I owe her something here. And so he he stretches and risks the violation of his good favor in the eyes of his teacher and risks the violation of a mitzvah that once you've gone to Eretz Yisrael, you should not leave Eretz Yisrael because he feels so pulled to his mother. But unclear to us if he feels pulled to her because his sense of violation has abated or because it's actually too hard to keep running away when a parent is pursuing us. Yeah. And I'm hearing in that question that he asks of Rav Yochanan, can I go out and greet her? Can I go out and do the honorable thing and accompany my mother in? Some of the ambivalence in his feelings towards her, right? Because he's, you know, based on what we have in the story, she's not abusive. She's not toxic, right? And there are some times in our lives where we have relationships with people where the level of toxicity, the level of abuse is such that somebody could reasonably say, the only appropriate, the only healthy thing I could do is maintain a very high boundary and not interact with this person at all. There's nothing in our story that indicates that's what Mrs. Asi is doing, though she is perhaps overbearing, pushy, non-differentiated. It's not the level of toxicity that says, I need nothing to do with you. I actually want to have a relationship with you, but I need a different type of relationship. I need a relationship on different terms. And I see him struggling with, on the one hand, I need that distance. On the other hand, his response isn't, oh God, she's coming to Israel. It's time for me to you know, go to New Zealand. He's saying, I don't want to keep running. Maybe this is an opportunity, or I'm hearing, I'm imagining him saying, maybe this is an opportunity to renegotiate my relationship with my mother. Though I don't know how successful those attempts often are. I don't know if we know what level of toxicity there was. And often when people choose to leave, they don't themselves know. There's something that says leave. And it's only after we've left that we can sort through how urgent that leaving was, what the leaving facilitates. And I like this idea that in his having been gone, we don't know how much time elapses between when he leaves and when she follows him, but something happened there where he wants to come towards her, some kind of reconciliation. And in the book that Supak and I edited, we, we gathered together a group. There were seven of us who told stories about caring for our mothers towards the end of their lives in different ways and then grieving for them, mourning for them. And as we, as a group of women, told these stories about caring for our mothers, we were able to talk about when we felt very fulfilled in that care and when it really stretched us and how the grief was affected by what was possible in life. These relationships are so complicated. So what we know is that he felt a need to flee and something happened when he fled. And then there was an impulse that he had to go meet his mother and it was too late. 
So that last line, which is so enigmatic here, I wouldn't have left if I had known, I wouldn't have left, that sometimes in retrospect, we would have made different choices if we had understood how limited our time was. But the urgency of the moment can feel so great that we don't keep that big picture in mind because the drive to go is so great. And so when we take the story as a whole, and the Talmud, of course, curates these stories, so the, the story ends with this regret, I would have done things differently, which is a reminder both of how complicated it is, how many needs both the mother has and the son has, and that if we read it with an eye towards the possibility of regret, we can revisit that moment of the leaving and wonder, did I need to leave? Yeah, so much in there. One thing that comes to mind is probably the deepest teeth marks on my own tongue come from me biting my tongue and not saying to my own kids, do you know how many funerals I've performed in which I've heard adult children say, I wish I could have more time with their parent? I'm here now saying, do you want to come do this thing with me? Do you want to come and go for a walk, a bike ride, whatever? And of course, my teenagers who are in the process of differentiating themselves and understanding themselves as different than just my kid have to need to appropriately set those boundaries and say, no, I don't want to do what you want to do. I want to do this other thing. For me, I have that voice of regret of everyone at a funeral. And yet you can't get to that wisdom immediately. You have to go through, I think you have to go through that process of differentiation and finding yourself. I hear that in here, that sense of regret from Rav Asi. I'm also struck, though, by the way he goes to Rav Yochanan and that desire for a authoritative, a parental or perhaps a vuncular voice. I think lots of times as, as an adult, I find myself thinking, I don't really know what to do. I'm not sure how to think about this circumstance. And wanting an adult, a figure, a parent who I can reach out to for that sort of guidance. And I'll say, you know, in my life, one of the deepest losses is an uncle who you knew, who I was very, very close with. And he was that avuncular voice. And I am so aware of mourning him and grieving his loss as a person. But also for me as an adult who is still baffled by all sorts of experiences of the world, wanting that parental or avuncular voice offering a little guidance, a little reassurance that, no, 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 you're, you're figuring this out. And that's one of the gifts an older generation can give a, a middle generation. And I hear that in Rav Asi going to Rav Yochanan and being uncertain and looking for some of that reassurance that he couldn't get from his mom. And that's perhaps why he needed to leave in the first place. Well, can I, can I mention? Please, yeah. Your, your Uncle Max, yeah. who I also loved and uh, feel inspired to dedicate our learning to his memory. For sure. He loved studying texts. And I, I love the way that you've played with the Rabbi Yochanan role here. So I want to look at his words. Yeah. He says, Asi, you need to leave. So may hamakom, may this name for God is the place. May the place bring you back in peace. So let's imagine that Rav Asi has spoken to Rabbi Yochanan about his mother. 
So Rabbi Yochanan knows that he left. And the blessing is all about leaving and returning. Yeah. The blessing is not just about leaving Eretz Yisrael and, as the physicality of leaving this place, but is about leaving and returning. The kind of return and reconciliation that Rav Asi is searching for in relation to his mother. And so this makom, this place, which is the divine rest that we search for, we can find those places in those relationships, those loving relationships. So God is being called on as this container in the way that we often think about parents as the container. And Rabbi Yochanan, who has served in this role in the absence of his mother, I love the way that you evoke that. Rabbi Yochanan knows that he is searching for a return and sometimes there can be a physical going back and a coming back, going and coming, that is the way that we reach our place of peace. And sometimes it's that spiritual journey of reconciliation with the people that we love who have hurt us, whom we have hurt, that allows us to come back to this place of peace. So I know you spent a lot of time in hospitals and a lot of time with people dealing with exactly some of these hardest issues of end of life, not just the medical issues of end of life, but the emotional issues that come up when we recognize what we've always known, which is that we're mortal and our loved ones are going to die and we're going to die. Do you have any thoughts or insights or are there things you've noticed about what are the circumstances or when people are able to reach some sort of reconciliation and when they aren't? And I'm thinking both about extreme questions of, of neglect and abuse, the sort of things that might or perhaps should have involved child protective services or something like that, and the much more, I would imagine, common, difficult dynamics, not not abusive, not physical, not anything that the foster system would or should be involved in, but the psychological difficulties and immaturities and dynamics that are present, I imagine, in virtually all parent-child and relationships. When, towards the end of life or in what circumstances, are people able to reach some peace with their parents and parents with their children? And when does that not happen? We wait until the end of our life to be involved with this reconciliation process well, we'll probably have missed the opportunity. We have to live with an awareness of the end. I love our Jewish calendar, right? We have this invitation every day to say tafanun, to think about where we've gone astray and to repair. And then we do it in bigger cycles. We have little on Rosh Chodesh, we have the lunar cycle every month. And then we come to the end of the year and we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur where we literally put on our shroud yeah. to remind ourselves that death is real and it can help us. It can help that awareness of the end helps us take stock of where we are so that we can examine the relationships that we have and live in the ways that we need to be living and do the work of reconciliation because we don't want to come to a place where we say, oh, if I had known, I would have done it all differently. We know. We don't know if it's today or tomorrow or next week or next month, but we know. And that can give us the fuel to take those steps. And they're hard. You, you give a whole array of different relationships. They're hard. It is hard work. But that, that line of if I had known, we know. I feel like part of what's at play here, 
And I'm very aware of being middle-aged and looking to both parent-child relationships that I'm in now. And I'm thinking of a, actually a different liturgical line from Kabbalah Shabbat from Friday Night Services, Sof Maaseh B'Machshavat right? the last thought in the first action, which in its context is, uh, I think, referring to Shabbat at the end of the week. But thinking about the last thought, the thought of the last, the thought of the end, the thought that we're mortal, informing our every action. And yet I know in my life, when I was a kid, even as a young adult, like, I mean, I knew that I was mortal. I knew that everybody I loved was mortal, but I didn't like really believe it. Possibly the hallmark of being middle-aged is experiencing the loss of people you love increasingly as you get older. And the awareness, in my experience, sometimes the oppressive awareness of like, oh, Lord, we're mortal. We're mortal. But young people, teenagers, children are blessedly free of that. That what's lets teenagers and young people sometimes take risks that are foolish, but also lets them do incredible things and go and explore incredible ways. And so I'm I'm struck. I'm not quite sure how to reconcile everything you're saying and that I'm feeling of like, right, to live with an awareness that time isn't infinite and I want to be right in my relationships while I can without being um, paralyzed um, by an awareness of mortality, which can be uh, <laughs> fairly oppressive when it when it comes. How do you navigate that? So obviously it's hard, right? Let's just start there. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing that I think is really helpful. What really helps is to bring death close. And one of the ways that we do that is through home hospice. Mm. So my father died at home. My mother died at home. My brother-in-law died at home. When my daughter was a baby, so this is now 23 years ago, I brought her to the home of my brother and his husband, Peter, whom I loved. And we spent the last weeks of Peter's life with Peter in home hospice and Ariella playing on the floor. She was just a few months old. And she absorbed from those earliest moments that life and death come together. When my mother died, we formed a circle around her bed, all of the family who was visiting and all of the family that is always here anyway. We formed this big circle around her bed. Mm. And it was on Shabbat, and my uncle is not observant, and he saw us around the bed, and we were singing to my mother. It was actually my husband's birthday. This was, she ended up dying two days later. But this scene that I'm describing happened on my husband's birthday, and I, I said to my mother, it's Jonathan's birthday, should we sing happy birthday? And my mother loved singing happy birthday. These were the last words that she said. She sang happy birthday to my husband on her deathbed. And my uncle wanted, he took out his camera and he wanted to film it. And my aunt said to him, what are you doing? This is my mother's brother. And he said, I want the children to see this so they'll know what to do. I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm tearing up hearing the story and the the intimacy and the tenderness and the vulnerability and having both that sense of yes record this so the children can see it and know what to do and i want to ask did the children ever watch that video was that a lesson they could learn 
from second hand, so to speak? Or is it something that you only have to experience and learn by crashing through it? So I can't remember if my uncle went ahead and recorded. I think he might not have. But my children were there. There were a lot of us there. It was a big circle. And my daughter said to me, when you get old, I will do for you what you've done for your mother. That's incredible and beautiful and incredibly sad. My kids are at home. My kids are 11 and 15. And I so often find myself hoping that one day they will forgive me all of the ways I have screwed up and be able to love me for what I have given them. I I feel like part of the gift that your daughters gave you there is seeing you and seeing what you might want and what you might hope for and honoring you in recognizing who you are, seeing you on your terms in ways that I think are understandably and appropriately difficult for children, right? Your children are young adults now, and I feel like part of that process of moving it from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood is somehow that process of thinking your parents are gods, hating your parents for not being gods, and then maybe, if you're lucky, coming to recognize and love your parents for who they are, for what's important to them, while forgiving them the ways in which they've screwed up, if they are forgivable. And I, I like to think that none of my screw-ups are unforgivable, but ultimately, that's my kid's decision, not mine. Yeah. You were asking about how we balance that need to be alive and an awareness of death. And I think what my daughter saw was that both caring for my mother was very important, that I did it in the ways that I most wanted to be able to do it. I didn't have regrets about what I was able to do for her, and that was very important to me. And it wasn't only a sacrifice. It was also a gift. And she could see that I had been gifted with this awesome experience of meeting the moment in the way that I needed to and wanted to as a human being, that my caring for my mother in this way was my living my life, my best life. And she wanted to be part of that. She wasn't only doing it out of obligation, but also out of inspiration. Yeah. And what a gift for your kids to reflect back to you that you've inspired them in some way. Thank you. So... Now your kids are are older. Are they are both your kids out of the house now? Yeah. Yeah. 20 and 23. All right. So I'm just a, you know, few calendar pages behind you. If you could and thinking, you know, of all of the different roles you and I play in these parent-child relationships, knowing how important it was to you and to your sense of self to become a mother as it it certainly was for me in becoming a father, how do you navigate not making some of the same mistakes that Mrs. Ossie made. How do you navigate letting your children go to their journeys, to their college, to whatever is in front of them? How do you reconcile that? How do you navigate that with your own understanding, your own identity as as a mother, but a mother whose children aren't at home, but who are out in the world doing things? How do you navigate your identity changes? Such a great question. 
I feel like my kids really know me. They, they get me as a human being and as a person, which means that sometimes I drive them crazy <laughs> and we can laugh about it. And sometimes we can fight about it. But just like I know them, they know me. And if I'm having a hard time with something and I act in a way that pisses them off, we'll figure it out together. So that really helps with finding where the boundaries need to be because they're constantly shifting and each kid is different and needs the boundaries to be drawn in different ways at different times. And so, of course, I'm going to get that wrong. But if they can tell me when I've gotten it wrong, then we can figure out together whether I think they need to be aware of something that they're not aware of or I need to be aware of something that I haven't been fully aware of. And it's that communication and flexibility and just making room for messing up. That makes the difference. Yeah. You're reminding me of something that my late teacher, and I suspect yours, Rabbi Rachel Cowan of Blessed Memory, that was after she wrote her book on wise aging, somebody had asked, how do we have an adult, a relationship with our adult children? And her response was, be the sort of people your adult children would want to have a relationship with. And that sense of being in touch and working on who you are is the vital piece of maintaining that relationship with adult children. And I'd say with anybody. Yeah. So I, I think part of what Ravasi's mother did, if I bring that into the text, would be that she wasn't living her own life. Yeah. And I love living my life. It's a marvelous thing to yeah. have this opportunity. So I want to keep living my life and I'm I'm happy to have my kids be in it with me to the degree that they want to be in it with me, but I only have the one life. <laughs> In the, in the words of the great sage Bruce Springsteen, it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. <laughs> so I want to be mindful of boundaries, both temporal and emotional. So by way of bringing this rich conversation to a close, I want to ask you something that we ask everyone at our Shabbos table on Friday nights to share their pegs, moments from the, from the recent past in which we have felt proud, in which we felt embarrassed, in which we felt grateful. So do you have any recent experiences of being proud, embarrassed, and grateful? I do. I was really proud yesterday when we had a hard conversation in a seminar, and I could see that somebody might have just stayed quiet out of fear that what they had to say would not be welcome, and they risked saying it. I was proud to be part of a space where it could be said. I was embarrassed last week when a student gave me some critical feedback and uh, I needed to listen to it and say, okay, I didn't meet you where you needed me to meet you. And I was grateful this weekend as I celebrated my husband's 60th birthday. Wow. Mazal tov. I'm very grateful for the years that we've had together. And as my mother would say, at have stream till 120. You're only at the halfway mark. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Michal, it is so, so good to see you, so good to learn with you. Thank you so much for all of your thoughts and insights, and hopefully again soon, even in person. I would love that. Brad, it's been such a pleasure to be in this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute delight for me. Thanks for joining us. You can learn more about Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships, and learn about other in-depth learning opportunities at pardes.org.il. And you can find me, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, on Instagram and Facebook, or get in touch at brent at pardes.org. 
Please share your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or texts you'd like us to explore. Special thanks to David Gutbazal and Jordan Steifman of Pardes, and Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab for audio engineering. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to learning with you next time about how we can all work to become good Jewish lovers.